Let me pray for us before I get started. Father, we thank you so much for this time, for the opportunity to gather and worship you and to hear your word proclaimed. God, I pray that you would use what I have prayerfully prepared for the edification of your body. I pray that our hearts would be stirred to love you more and to pursue you more fervently. God, I pray that our church would be a body that reflects well on you, that we would be a community that love one another well, and that first and foremost have our hearts set on just devotion to you. Lord, I'm so thankful for the people in this room, their relationships, their friendships, their participation in this church, their, their prayers, their hunger for you, their fellowship in the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would continue to knit our church together. And Father, that you would also make us faithful to be proclaimers of your gospel in this city where you've established us. We want to see the name of Jesus Christ lifted high. Bless this time as we sit under your word. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, okay, so we're nearing the end of our study through this book of First Thessalonians. Believe it or not, we'll be in here a, a few more weeks at least. You may be looking at the, the number of verses left and wondering how that's possible, uh, but I will show you in the next couple of weeks. Uh, and I, I just confess, I honestly wish that I had a guest speaker this morning. Uh, I wish that I was not preaching, because a big portion of our text today deals pretty explicitly with how you should treat me, or more accurately, how you should treat our elders, the spiritual leaders of our church. And you, you, you might see that like, that can feel like a little bit of a conflict of interest. Like for me to just get up here for 35 minutes or so and tell you how you're supposed to behave towards me. Uh, and if you don't know me, and this is your only exposure to Maricopa Springs Family Church, then maybe this sermon could come across as being very self-serving, uh, which is why I would just avoid the verses if I could. But since they're here in our text, and we try to mostly just work our way through a, a text of Scripture, we are going to deal with them. And my goal, just so you understand, is to try and just show you what these verses say. And although I wish I could avoid these verses, in another sense, I'm, I'm actually really glad we're doing this now, okay? And there's two reasons. First, because when I'm done, we're going to affirm Bla uh, Brad Pollock as one of our elders today. And so it makes sense for me in the process of affirming him as an elder to tell you how you should treat him as an elder. But the second reason why I, I think this is a good time for us to do this is because I don't feel the need to do this right now. Uh, which is probably the best time to talk about your responsibility to me and our elder team as someone who participates in the life of our church. And what I mean is, because I think the current state of our church is generally pretty healthy, I can deal with these verses very dispassionately, uh, without kind of a chip on my shoulder or an axe to grind, without being too hard on you because I'm angry or bitter or wounded or something like that. I don't feel overwhelmed right now. I don't feel mistreated. I don't feel the need to get up here for 30 or 40 minutes and sort of manipulate the text of Scripture to make myself feel better, okay? Um, so although I'd rather avoid these verses entirely, 
God is really gracious to bring us to them under our current set of circumstances so that we can look at them in a, in a pretty objective way and just treat uh, them plainly and seek to train ourselves in obedience without brokenness or our ulterior motives, okay? But I do want to say one other thing before I read our verses, uh, and that's this. I do want you to understand that the role of a pastor or the role of an elder, which I really think are, are pretty synonymous roles, and I'm going to use those two terms more or less interchangeably this morning, I do want you to understand that it is, in fact, a tough gig. It is. Um, I think all of our elders, myself included, love the privilege that we have in leading a church, shepherding this body. We do it joyfully unto the Lord for your sake and for the sake of Jesus. We're motivated by that. But it is a difficult role, and I, I do want you to understand that. Um, I've heard it said that a pastor needs the, the mind of a scholar and the heart of a child and the skin of a rhinoceros. And I would say that that's true from my experience. I'll be honest, half the time, I don't know what I'm doing uh, in this role. And the demands are high. They lead me to suffer from anxiety sometimes and depression sometimes and discouragement and just overwhelming feelings of weakness and insufficiency and insecurity. And I'm not unique in this regard. This is not just my experience. If you look at the text of Scripture, you see that this is, this is a pretty common experience. It's biblical. Paul himself in 2 Corinthians 2, while he's reflecting on his own pastoral leadership of the church in Corinth, he declares, who is sufficient for these things? And of course, the answer is nobody, Christ alone, right? In all of his letters combined, Paul points out more than 10 different times in discussing ministry or the work of the gospel, he says it's hard work. He reflects on his own difficulties in 2 Corinthians 11. He says he feels daily pressure for the churches, anxiety over those churches. He's had sleepless nights and hardships. He's had to deal with painful criticism and he even points out that for those who are married, there's an additional level of intensity to this role, which Paul didn't experience because he wasn't married. And that's another important point that I need to mention because my wife and my children are often unfairly exposed to my discouragement, to my uncertainty in private, at home, behind closed doors. They're required to make many sacrifices in order to put up with me in the profession that I've chosen. Um, and they do it joyfully, and they do it without complaining. And all of that to say, I think it's fair for me, like Paul, to simply just make you, to make you aware of the fact that the role of an elder in a church is not actually an easy role. And this is, why, this is one of the reasons why there are a few other men in our church who I've approached over the years and said, would you consider being an elder at Maricopa Springs? And they've humbly said no, which I can understand and I respect that. Okay, now in saying all this, my introduction is too long. So let, let me t stop talking about this and let's get into our text. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 12. It says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. 
and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Let me remind you that as we've worked our way through uh, the, the book of First Thessalonians, we've seen a lot of biography, Paul's relationship to this church. Uh, and now we've, we've come to this place where we're dealing with more of the practical application that Paul wants to pass on to them. He's taking the opportunity to teach and encourage them how to live the Christian life in the context of the church family here. And here in these verses, he lays out seven commands that are born out of the prior verse, which we didn't read, verse 11. It says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So this is not a hard transition for Paul. Maybe your Bible puts a, a heading in between verse 11 and verse 12, but this is not a hard transition for Paul. He's, he's continuing on the thought of what it looks like to build one another up. And so these seven commands which we're going to look at in more detail are just further ways in which we can encourage one another and build up the church that we belong to. And they're commands which, Paul, or which God has inspired Paul to write so that the whole church might be obedient to them, everyone in the church. Before we get to each of the specific commands, let me just say that a church that is disobedient to these commands is, is a church that's engaging in self-harm. I think most people intuitively understand that self-harm is foolish. And here we find a call in Scripture not to participate in self-harm, to avoid that. And it's sad to see somebody who chooses to harm themselves, isn't it? Have you ever had a relationship with somebody who's going through a struggle like that? A person who engages in self-harm in our day and age would typically be diagnosed with a mental disorder. We would want to get them help. We would want to plug them in with maybe a therapist or a psychiatrist or, or hopefully a pastor, somebody who can help them make progress in this area so they don't continue to wound themselves intentionally because they're behaving in self-destructive ways. And in the same way, people in the church are called to build up the body of Christ, not harm it, not intentionally or maybe even unintentionally wound it. And I want you to understand that when we engage in the uh, process of disobeying the commands of God regarding the church, we harm the body of Christ, which is an incredibly unwise and destructive thing to do. It's unhealthy. So I hope that you will hear these commands and, and be motivated to obey them for the sake of the body of Christ. So verses 12 and 13, they give us two commands that might really be best understood as synonyms. They're essentially equivalent. Respect those who labor among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. That's the first command. And the second then is like it. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. I find it interesting here that, first of all, Paul uses uh, some pretty gentle language to make this command to, this, uh, to the body of believers in Thessalonica. Beginning in verse 12, he says, We ask you which is still a command, it's just given very tenderly. And I think that points out even Paul's kind of awkwardness in dealing with this subject matter, in commanding the sheep under his care to respect and esteem him. Sometimes Paul does bring a heavy hand. 
But in this instance, when he wants to command the church, he says to them very gently, we ask you. And now we need to zero in on a couple of the words that he uses in this ask, okay? To make sure that we really grasp their meaning. And I'm going to uh, try and pull out a more full definition of some of these words by using uh, a Greek dictionary. And I'll try not to be dull as I do so, but I think it's necessary here, okay? First, there's three words that describe church leaders or elders and pastors here. The first one is they labor among you. They labor among you. The Greek word here really means to work hard, to toil, to struggle to the point of becoming tired is one of the dictionary definitions. And sadly, too many pastors and elders and church leaders end up burned out. They labor to the point of exhaustion And some in that process never recover from that outcome. And some of that, I think there's two reasons. The first one is because they esteem themselves too highly. Pastors who esteem themselves too highly, who think that they can be Jesus instead of just point people to Jesus. And that's the sin of arrogance. It is insecurity that needs to please people. It's pride and self-importance. And if you see that in me or any of the other elders, then I would ask you out of love for us that you would gently, graciously call that out so that we don't become useless for Jesus by overestimating our own importance in the equation of the church body. These are leaders who forget that Jesus said leaders in the church are supposed to be servants. Their aim is not to increase but to decrease so that Christ himself might increase. And I would go so far as to say, even though their burnout is tragic, it's actually a great grace to the church. God removes them so that maybe, hopefully, healthier leaders can come in and lead the church in a better direction. But pastors also burn out because many people in their church actually don't esteem them highly enough. They become punching bags for criticism. They become scapegoats for other people's problems. Some pastors and their families end up actually abused by either their church or particular people within it. People who openly disobey this command to esteem them very highly because of their labor of love, their work of the ministry. I've often said in private conversations that I don't want to build our church on the graves of people. I don't want to build Maricopa Springs and say, here's where this volunteer is buried because we wore them out. Here's where that staff member is buried because we used them up. I certainly don't want it to be a a volunteer or a staff member. I don't want it to be my wife or my children or my family either. And church leadership is hard labor, but it doesn't have to be a ruinous occupation if pastors are humble and if churches give their leaders grace. Next, I do want you to understand that God has ordained an authority structure for the church, which we find here in these verses. The people whom Paul is speaking about are over you in the Lord, in verse 12. And this may be a difficult pill for you to swallow in our anti-authority culture that we live in. You may not like the idea that you have authoritative leaders over you here at Maricopa Springs. Um, I've been told by people in pastoral counseling sessions, in private and behind closed doors, 
that I have no right to judge the people I'm talking to, that I shouldn't tell people how they should live their lives. But the counsel that I've tried to offer is not just Grady's personal opinion, but the wisdom that God offers in His Word. And as long as I'm pointing people to Jesus, I have every right to tell people how to live their lives according to the Bible. You can choose whether you want to receive that or not. But the fact of the matter is, if you call yourself a part of this church, then God has placed our elders over you so that you might be spiritually mature, so that you might be equipped for every good work, so that you might be obedient to Jesus and deeply in love with the Father and walk in step with the Holy Spirit. And where you reject that kind of leadership or authority structure for the church, you rebel against God himself and you therefore act foolishly and you place yourself under his judgment in danger. Now, that's not to say that our elders are infallible. Please don't hear me say that. You have the responsibility to know your Bible so that you can authenticate the wisdom that we offer to you from it. But you are under the authority of our elders according to the will of God if Maricopa Springs is your church. And to buck that authority is to displease the Lord. And I want you to understand that your place under that authority takes a measure of faith. And I recognize that. Because we believe that God ordains leaders in the church, even bad ones, so that his people might learn to love him and to trust him more and to grow in godliness. Best case scenario is that those leaders are good leaders and they lead the church under the authority of Jesus. That's the responsibility of the elders, and they will be held accountable to that. Worst case scenario is, though, that they don't. But the responsibility of the wider church body is still to trust God and obey Him in that, embracing the mystery that everything God permits is good, even when it seems bad. Now, I'm not saying that you're stuck only in those two options. There are other options, like helping those church leaders get healthy, If you see that I'm dysfunctional or my marriage is out of disorder or out of order or I don't parent my children well, I would hope that uh, you would step in and say, Grady, I've noticed these things. I have concerns. Can I help you? Or there's another option, which is leaving any particular church where there's bad leadership and finding a healthier church where there's better leadership. But in any case, whether things turn out good or bad, you are required to trust God in the leadership of the church. We are called to have faith that God works together all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Next, you need to understand that the word admonish in verse 12 is not generally a positive word. In other words, leaders in the church are sometimes required to say hard things to challenge sin, to viciously attack idols, to demand obedience, to rebuke the sheep if it's necessary, whether that's corporately from maybe the pulpit or privately. Notice down in verse 14 that we as believers are called to admonish the idol. That's not encouraging language, right? That's not merely just like encourage idle people. It's admonish. It's bring them out of that. It is the tough love 
that comes with an authoritative position. And all I want you to understand at this point is that it's not okay for you to only accept sweet words from our elders when they speak to you and not also difficult words. Are you humble enough to hear both encouragement and rebuke should that be necessary? I don't find any pleasure in saying hard things, but it's part of the job description of those who lead the church to speak the truth even if that may hurt. And your job is to receive those things, weigh them according to Scripture, and respond then in a way that honors Jesus. Next, I want you to see the phrase, esteem them very highly, in verse 13. Uh, The Greek dictionary that I use for word studies is is sort of affectionately called BDAG. That's the initials of the people who, who put it together. Bauer, Danker, Arndt, whatever. Okay. And it's considered to be the best definition on Greek, or the best resource on Greek definitions that there is. And it says that this phrase is the highest form of comparison in the Greek language. The underlying Greek word, very highly. It uses the Greek prefix hyper, which is one that we use in English as well, like hyperspeed. It's the greatest speed, the highest, the fastest. It's the ultimate. And so Paul is saying that the church should have hyper esteem for the leaders of the church. One commentator went so far as to say that this word here means that believers must treat their Christian leaders with a level of respect that is higher or greater than that shown to any other person or official based on that word. And consider what Scripture is saying here. Elders are deserving of the utmost respect, the greatest honor, I warned you that this was going to make me uncomfortable because it might sound self-serving. But let's, let's unpack this a little bit, okay? What does this mean? Well, I think that some people take this to mean that you should do nice things for your pastor in October when Caleb tells you that it's Pastor Appreciation Month. Or you should cook your pastor's family a meal from time to time. Or if you run a business, give him a discount when he shops at your business. Or buy him a gift card to a bookstore. Wink, wink. And I certainly appreciate all of those things, if that's something that you choose to do. And I'm honored and I'm blessed by them when you do them. My family's been graciously spoiled by our church in these kinds of ways over the years, and I'm thankful for that. But do you know the best way that you can hyper-esteem the elders of Maricopa Springs? You know, the number one way that you can honor them and respect them and esteem them very highly, it's pray for us. Pray for us. Truly, the kindest, most loving thing that you can do for me and my family and for the elders of our church and their wives and their children is to pray for us. Pray that Jesus would hold us close to himself. Pray that we would be obedient in shunning sin and seeking righteousness. Pray that we would be wise and discerning. Pray that we would hunger for God's word and feel starved and famished if we neglect it. Pray that the Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us and shield us in this role. Pray that we would be delivered from the evil one who would love to destroy the leadership of a church because of the devastating rippling effect it has in the rest of the body. 
Pray that our children would love Christ Jesus and love the church and not be jealous of it. Pray that our wives would not be jealous lovers of the bride of Christ who often gets more time with, our, with their husbands than they do themselves. There is no greater honor that you can show to me or my wife or my children or the other elders. There's no hyper-esteem more valuable to us than that you would pray fervently and consistently for me, my family, and the elders of Maricopa Springs. I don't need you to show your appreciation for me once a year on Pastor Appreciation Month. I need you to pray for me every day. I'm not saying you can't do those other things if that's something you want to do. I'm grateful for them. I'm just saying don't do those other things and neglect to pray for me. You are called to esteem our elders very highly in love. And there's nothing more loving that you can do than pray for us. Now briefly, why are elders deserving of this kind of esteem? Well, obviously, it's because they get a name badge that says elder, right? It's because of the title. No, it's not because of the title. It's because of the work that we do. If you receive the Medal of Honor from the military, you don't get... It's not the medal itself that's important. It's about what it says about what you have done. And so you don't esteem me because I have the title elder. It's because... Christ Jesus has called our elders to be least in this body, to be the lowest, to serve, to reject personal greatness so that Jesus is highly glorified. You are to esteem us because our work is to serve the body humbly in love and because we bear the extra judgment and burden that Jesus impresses upon those who choose to be shepherds of his flock. Never esteem us merely because we are called elder or pastor, but only and always because we are lowly in our efforts to make Jesus Christ hyper-esteemed among the body. The next command is that there be peace among us. And this is so important because peace is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is proof that the Holy Spirit is among us. This is such a fitting statement to come after the call that the church is supposed to sit under the admonishment of the elders of a church. Because admonishment can very easily produce bitterness, anger, vengeance, gossip, passive-aggressive behavior, rebellion, dissension, and division. Does it feel good to be admonished by somebody? No. And I can tell you from experience that where I've done that, where I've admonished people attempting to be obedient to God's word, it has sometimes come back to bite me very hard. And Paul understands this. In fact, he puts this little sentence, be at peace among yourselves, right between his two uses of the word admonish. Do you see that? Because he knows that this is a delicate process that can often produce greater sin instead of greater holiness. And it's clear from the relational orientation of these commands that Paul's not talking about inner peace here. He's talking about relational peace, communal peace, a far more difficult thing, that we would be at peace with one another. So how do you do that? How do you have peace in community? I actually think this is so simple. In fact, I'm afraid it's so simple that we might be dissatisfied with how simple it is and want to make it more complicated. 
It's not. We follow the teaching of Jesus. We love our neighbor as ourselves. And if we love our neighbor as ourselves, then our needs and our desires are not the all-important focus of our lives. If we are not seeking greatness for our own name, if we are not concerned about how we might appear, if we are not concerned about what we get out of it, but instead we're striving to decrease so that Jesus would increase, then when we don't get our way, or somebody says something offensive or stupid, or we don't get the praise that we thought we would, if it's been all about Jesus all along, then it doesn't matter. In other words, peace comes in community when we are fighting hard for Jesus and not fighting hard for ourselves. And listen, I just need to say, talk about admonish, some of you are easily offended. You're easily offended. And others of you are just offensive. And stop. Stop behaving in such an immature and childish way. Stop thinking so highly of yourself that every time somebody says something, you think it's all about you. And stop being so proud that everywhere you go, you leave wounded people in the trail behind you. If you are selfish and self-centered and you're always concerned about you, then you will never be at peace with other people. But if you're selfless and you're Christ-centered, you're always concerned about what Jesus thinks or how your actions might make him feel, then it's actually easy to be at peace. Because Christ, your rock, makes your world unshakable. Because when Christ is the central concern of our lives, then we've, we matter very little in the equation. And if we always matter very little in the equation, we don't feel hurt when we get left out of the equation. Does that make sense? I mean, maybe a simple illustration is, I don't know, maybe you, maybe you give up tons of your time to come here and you help set up. And nobody ever says thank you. I'm sorry, we should say thank you. We should. But why do you do it? Do you do it so that you will get praised or do you do it for Jesus' sake? Peace comes to the church when everyone in the church is thinking more about loving Jesus and loving others than loving themselves. That's pretty simple. Next, we get to the final four commands. So we're now really leaving the the focus on the elders and we're now talking more generally about the church. And what I want you to understand here is that the first command to admonish the idol in verse 14 really actually emphasizes the fact that you are called to ministry. You may not be an elder or a pastor, but you are called to ministry. Notice how Paul uses this word first in our list of church-wide commands so that we would actually make a connection back to the role of elders and leaders in the church in verse 12. Here's what I mean. Paul says to the church leaders, admonish people, that that's part of what they do. And then in verse 14, he tells the church as a whole to admonish the idol. Do you, or yes, those who are idle. Do you notice the overlap of the roles? This is to emphasize the need for the whole church to be invested in the health of the church. While church leaders bear a particular responsibility to engage in these activities, All Christians bear a general responsibility to engage in the work of the ministry. Can I say that again? 
Church leaders bear a particular responsibility to engage in these activities, but all Christians bear a general responsibility for the health of the church. You may not be an elder or a church leader, but you are called to ministry, to care for the body of Christ, to admonish those in sin, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, to be patient as people move slowly towards greater holiness. That's your work. It's my work. It's the work of every faithful Christian. So quickly, let me touch on each of these, okay? Admonish the idol means that we cannot tolerate sloth and laziness in the church. It's not acceptable. It looks poorly upon Jesus. And of course, that is literally true. And what I mean by that is if you are able to work and you don't work, you should not expect that we will pick up the slack. If you can work and you just don't want to work, you shouldn't expect that we will pay your bills for you. But if we consider what Paul's been talking about just a few verses back, that Jesus is coming soon. If you remember a few weeks ago, I I spent quite a bit of time talking about spiritual idleness. We also see, I think, then Paul to mean that those who are spiritually apathetic and idle need to be rebuked. They need to be called to renew their passion for Jesus Christ. Then encourage the faint-hearted. Again, I have to go to the Greek here because the literal underlying term for faint-hearted is the little-souled. The little-souled. Those whose souls have been diminished by tragic circumstances. The people who need a friend. Who because of a season of their life, they've been through trials and suffering and they might need the wider church body to basically throw them over their shoulder for a time and carry them towards Christ. And I've been there at one point in my life. I'm so thankful for a friend who who just daily was in my life to help me in that season, to remind me that I wasn't alone, to encourage me with the hope of the gospel. Next, we have help the weak. And again, literally in Greek, it means to cling to them. Cling to the weak. The picture that comes to mind is uh, that, that scene that ends up in so many movies where somebody goes over the edge of a cliff and their friend reaches down, right, with their arm and, and grabs them and they're just, they're holding on for dear life, hand to hand, like that. With the goal that they might pull them up and not let them fall down. And it can be easy in the church to fall into the temptation of despising the weak. Like, what's wrong with you? Why can't you get it together? Why can't you be stronger? Why can't you come along to be condescending? But we are called to cling to the weak with a white-knuckled grip. Devotion to our weaker brothers and sisters so that we might pull them up towards greater godliness and not disparage them as they seek Christ. Finally, be patient with them all. And this is the same word that's used in the Old Testament description of God in Exodus 30, or 34, 6. It says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God is patient with us. 
God is so patient with us. And we too are called to be long-suffering with our brothers and sisters, patient and encouraging as they slowly grow in greater maturity and holiness over months and years and decades, maybe. And now in closing, I have to bring it back to Jesus. You know I'm going to do this because I always do this, or at least I always try to do this. Sometimes it falls flat, but think about it. Respect and esteem elders because Jesus has respected and esteemed you. That's what he's given to you. Admonish, encourage, help, and be patient. Because Jesus admonishes us when we are idle. He encourages us when we are faint-hearted. He helps us in our weakness. He clings to us in our weakness. And He's so patient with each and every one of us. We are only doing for others what God has already done for us. And again, I tell you like I always tell you, look to Christ in order to obey these commands. See how much He has done for you. Offer to others the same love and grace which He has offered to you. First, receive from Him this kindness. Like, drink it in so that you might be full. And then overflowing to offer it to others. Let me pray for us. God, we need you so desperately. We need to be reminded of how desperate we are before you. Lord, don't allow us to deceive ourselves into thinking that we are not faint-hearted, that we are not weak, that we are not idle. God, I pray that you would impress upon us the truth that in relationship to you, we are the weaker member. And you have always showed us grace. You have clung to us with a white-knuckled affection. And God, I pray that we would be filled with that truth so that we might then offer that same kindness to others. That we would be humble and not proud. That we would be generous with our love and not stingy. God, we need you to work this description of the church out in our church. We can't do it apart from you. And so send your Holy Spirit to do that in power, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.